0: I'm sure that there are many of you who have renewed an old acquaintance with Bell Wiley tonight. It's always a pleasure to meet with Bell. I was delighted when he accepted our invitation to speak to us tonight. I don't think anything further need be said. This time I present Dr. Bell Wiley, who will speak on the Confederate Congress.
1: I assure you that it's a genuine pleasure for me to be able to meet with you again and to renew acquaintances which go back in many individual instances over many years. I appreciate the companionship that you've permitted me to enjoy with you over the years, and uh, I appreciate your tolerance of me as a speaker. I had some uh, hesitation about uh, proposing the topic that I'm to talk about tonight because it is not uh, as full of uh, human interest, it's not as... Rich in human etarist, as I should like for it to be. But uh, I have formed the opinion, on the basis of my prior association with you, uh, that while you like human etarist, uh, you do not require it, and uh, that you like to probe into some areas that have not been fully developed. And in my opinion the Confederate Congress is one of the great unknown quantities in Confederate history. If you read the general histories of the Confederacy, you will find a few paragraphs or a few pages about the Confederate Congress. But we still have a great deal of lo- to learn about this major branch of the Confederate government. Now I want to make it quite clear that I do not come to you as an authority on the Confederate Congress. There's a great deal that I have yet to learn about it, and I'm still seeking information, and I'm still having difficulty finding information about the Confederate Congress. Of course, there was no Congressional record as such published for the Confederate Congress. The closest thing that we have to a Congressional record are reports of the proceedings published in the Montgomery and then the Richmond newspapers, but these were by the very nature of things only fragmentary, because the important work of the Confederate Congress was done in secret session, and newspaper reporters were barred from those sessions. So from the official records, we cannot find out very much of the inside story, or as far as that goes, the outside story of the Confederate Congress. So uh, about uh, six or eight years ago, I started seriously looking for letters written by members of the Confederate Congress while they were in office. And I have turned up uh, several hundred of these letters. I believe the largest collection I have of a single congressman are letters of W. C. Reeves, a venerable and distinguished member of the Congress from Virginia, who had uh, been an influential member of the old federal Congress. And I was checking uh, down at Charlottesville, Virginia, last week, and I found that I had about a hundred letters, if I recall, <coughs> all right, of William C. Reeves. But that is far and away the largest collection of any one congressman that I have. I say all of this to you in the hope that I may enlist your aid in finding letters written by members of the Confederate Congress while they were in Congress. You might ask, well, how am I going to find out who was in the Congress? Uh, It's uh, a little difficult. There was a pamphlet uh, published by the government about, uh, well, the late 1800s that lists the members of the Congress. But if you think you have a lead, if you will write to me, I will send you a mimeographed list of the congressmen by states, and I would be happy to do that, and I hope that Maybe uh, you sometimes, as one of your publication projects, will publish the full list of Confederate congressmen uh, with an introductory sketch about the Congress and its work. I think it would be a useful thing for you to do. Now, I want to read uh, about four or five letters written by Confederate congressmen. If I put it off until I get through with my talk, I won't do it because I will be ashamed of myself for having talked so long. Uh, So maybe that will make me cut my speech a little if I'll read some of the letters now. Now, I'm uh, going to read first a letter written by W.W. Boyce, who was a member of the House of Representatives from South Carolina and who had recently been a member of the federal House of Representatives. And this letter I found last week down at the University of Virginia, and I didn't have time to type it off, and it's in uh, photostat, And... uh, I hope he was more accomplished uh, as a speaker than he was as a writer, uh, because his handwriting is almost as bad as mine, not quite. Uh, I may have just a little trouble, even though I've read it two or three times. This is written from Montgomery, Alabama, February 5th, 1861, to RMT Hunter, who uh, later became uh, Secretary of State. He didn't get along very well with Mr. Davis. That was not an unusual experience. And uh, then he became uh, a member of the Senate from his home state of Virginia. Virginia had not seceded. This was the second day of the first meeting of the Confederate Congress. The Congress assembled on February 4th. This was February 5th. My dear sir, I should add that Hunter and Boyce had uh, been together in Washington as uh, members of the Federal Congress. Thinking you would like to know the condition of affairs here, I will write you a few lines. The feeling here is almost perfectly unanimous against any kind of compromise or reconstruction. The Constitution of the United States will be adopted without adding any amendments to which you would object. And you recall that uh, the federal Constitution was uh, adopted by the Confederate Congress with very few changes. No one, so far as I know, favors the African slave trade. And there was considerable fear on the part of many people in the South that now that the Confederacy was a separate nation, that the African slave trade that had been closed by a compromise adopted on the formation of the original Union would be reopened. Mr. Hunter didn't want it reopened because Virginia uh, was a border state and uh, Virginia did not like the idea of having uh, slaves brought into the South in large numbers for economic reasons and uh, for uh, the effect uh, that it might have on the sentiment of the world. And the majority of the Christian world was hostile to human bondage at this time. Independence is the only thing thought of. We will act promptly and vigorously in setting up our new government. There is the greatest anxiety to have Virginia with us. If Virginia were with us, you would be elected provisional and permanent president by acclamation. Some persons uh, ask frequently, well, who would have made a a good president of the Confederacy? I think RMT Hunter would have made a better president than Jefferson Davis did. But uh, I think uh, there were better possibilities than Hunter, though he was a good man. But I think this statement is probably true. I think that if Virginia had been in the Confederacy from the beginning, that Hunter, because of his standing among the Southern political leaders, might very well have been elected president. If Kentucky were with us, Breckinridge, vice president. And I think that's probably true too. As it is, Jeff Davis will, I think, be made commander-in-chief of the Army. And that's the job that Jeff wanted. And uh, many uh, authorities on the Confederacy think that it is a pity that he didn't get it in terms of the future of the Confederacy, uh, but a good thing that he didn't get it in terms of the future of the United Nations. I'm not sure about that. I I have serious doubts that Jefferson Davis would have made a good commander in chief of the Confederacy because of uh, qualities that uh, were brought brought out, weaknesses that were brought out in bold relief during his uh, term as president. I could be wrong in that. He wanted to be commander-in-chief, and he did not want, that is, general-in-chief, and he did not want to be president. And uh, the fact that he was doing something that he wished to do might have made a big difference. And certainly uh, he did have some experience uh, as uh, colonel of a regiment in the Mexican War and then as secretary of war in military affairs, but he also had had a lot of experience in political affairs. And Howell Cobb, would be made provisional president. Well, he was, Howard Cobb was made uh, president of the provisional Congress, but not provisional president, though there were many people who favored him for president. But he was regarded as something of an apostate uh, by the Democrats because of his affiliation in Georgia with the old Whig group in the 1850s, and uh, they never forgave him for it. Indeed, one of the reasons that Jefferson Davis became president was an effort on the part of Cobb's enemies to head him off. I can't describe to you how much pleasanter it feels to sit in a Congress where you are surrounded by friends. (laughs) The fixed resolve here is separation from the North and Southern Independence. Such being the fact as we can't go to you, why then, you must come to us. We will have our envoys in Europe very soon. I wish you would put your shoulder to the wheel and bring Virginia into our confederacy. We would throw up our caps and drink up all the champagne we could find on the occasion. Well, they couldn't have found much champagne in Montgomery, but there was lots of good bourbon. Well, I don't know how good it was. There was lots of bourbon there uh, at this stage of the game, though it became exceedingly scarce later on. Come on in, and Virginia shall have things exactly as she wants them, capital included. And this was very interesting to me, that this early in the game, uh, they were thinking in terms of uh, moving the capital to Richmond, which they did a few months later. Give my respects to Mr. Mason. I should like to hear from you, and I should be very glad indeed to receive any suggestions you may think proper to make as to what we should do, as ever with the kindest wishes your friend W. W. Boyce. The next letter is written by one of the uh, more colorful members of the Confederate Congress, a man from Texas who had uh, lived in South Carolina, but who killed a man in a duel and found uh, the South Carolina climate uh, not so congenial after that. And so he did, like many other people in similar circumstances, he could put the magic initials after his name, GTT, gone to Texas. Uh, and so he was representing uh, Texas in the Confederate Congress. He's down at, uh, in Albemarle County, North Carolina, when he wrote this letter on April 12, 1864. It was a good idea to get out of Richmond between terms because it was so costly to live in the Confederate uh, capital and uh, food was scarce, living was much, much better out in the provinces, so it was quite common for the Confederate uh, congressman to migrate. My dear sir, Remember the date, April 12, 1864. My dear sir, if you have the United States statutes at large, 10 or 11 volumes, and the opinions of the Attorney General's, eight or nine volumes, and no one uses them at home while you are absent, I wish very much that you would bring them up with you to Richmond when you come. I will either take them to my room and keep them carefully for you during the session, or if they are not in your way, you can keep them at your own room, and I will then have an opportunity of seeing them when I wish. Now, listen at this sentence. Benjamin, that's Judah P. Benjamin, a controversial character who held three cabinet portfolios in succession, Attorney General, Secretary of War, and Secretary of State. He was now Secretary of State and had been for about two years. Benjamin has the only copy of either that I know of in Richmond, and I don't like to go about him more than is necessary. (laughs) Uh, That's an eloquent testimonial on uh, his desire to stay away from Benjamin. I have not been in Richmond since I left after the session and will remain here till the end of the month. I have therefore no news. Have you any? Have you heard from Lee or do you know how he feels on the subject of the spring campaign? If Lincoln has as the northern papers say, at last found out that he cannot command the army of the United States longer with safety to either his country or himself. And Grant is not a greater fool than he is usually taken to be. Lee will have no child's play this spring. And the sooner the Congress adjourns and we get south, the better. Uh, He was thinking of... (laughs) his own personal safety, then, as well as that of his colleagues. Richmond is an entrenched camp without depots of of subsistence, and if Lee is ever driven into the lines around the city, and it is thoroughly invested, the surrender of his army will be only a question of time. I hope for the best, but fear the worst. It is a great pity our advice had not been taken, and uh, our generals been summoned, or assembled rather, for consultation. Now this is the first that I have encountered that, that uh, leaders of Congress proposed early in 1864 that the leading generals of the Confederacy be, be brought to Richmond for consultation as to the best mode of procedure. We should have taken the initiative this spring and struck a crushing blow upon on one or the other of their armies before either was ready to move. As it is, we are again awaiting the attack. And our only hope of safety is in Grant being too great a fool to use the forces now under his control. The party which first concentrates will win. Mark that. It will be a comfort if I am hung to be able to prove that I expected it. (laughs) If you have nothing better to do I would be very glad to hear from you. I am very truly and sincerely your friend, Louis Wigfall. The most interesting thing that I found at Charlottesville was a letter written by Randolph, George W. Randolph, uh, who was Secretary of War for a while. This letter is written to his brother, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, June 25, 1862, ten days after Randolph resigned the Secretaryship of War. My dear brother, I am much obliged for the kind letter from Sister from sister Jane, Amy, and yourself in reference to my resignation, and am anxiously awaiting the determination of my status in the hope that it may afford me an opportunity to visit Edge Hill. That was the family estate. Immediately on resigning, I notified the Adjutant General that if uh, considered in commission, I held myself at the disposal of the department and uh, was ready to execute its orders. I have received no answer yet, and therefore I am not sure whether I am citizen or soldier. And I think that uh, is uh, an adverse commentary on uh, the treatment of Randolph. uh, It's been 10 days since he resigned. He's right there in Richmond. Adjutant General Cooper has had his Resignation in, but he doesn't know whether he still retains the commission that he had as a general uh, when he uh, before he held the office of Secretary of War and while he held the office. Uh, he was a very high-tight man, and uh, he was already uh, very much uh, hurt because uh, he had felt forced to resign because of his disagreement with Davis. And even though it is known, it must have been known, that he was feeling that way, he was permitted to cool his heels for a good while uh, before he found out what his status was. He was permitted to hold his commission, but he was given nothing uh, that uh, was uh, seemingly important to do, and so he finally resigned his commission. I should state, in all fairness, that his health was bad, and he died of tuberculosis uh, in 1867, I believe. There with his papers at uh, the University of Virginia is a long statement uh, concerning his death that was taken down by Gene, whom he mentions in this letter, and it's one of the most uh, touching documents uh, that I've ever read. Uh, Truly, he was uh, a Christian gentleman of a very high order. Well, I'm going to uh, omit a little and get to the point where he comments on his resignation. My resignation was not caused by any quarrel with the president but by difference of opinion as to the discretions which should be rested in the secretary. He wished to impose restrictions which in my judgment were derogatory to the office and hurtful to the public service and uh, to uh, which I would not submit uh, to uh, and which I could not submit to without uh, sacrificing my self-respect and the public interest. I deemed it my duty, therefore, to decline acquiescence in a misuse of the office and to retire from it. My continuance in office would have done the country more harm than my resignation. I think that the Army organization is so far perfected as to require little more than assiduous supervision. Some reforms are still much needed, but Congress, I think, will not permit them. And all that remains to be done is to make the best use we can of what they have given us. Mr. Seddon's appointment is manifestly a declaration that the President intends to be his own Secretary of War. Now, that charge, of course, has been made many times. Uh, Mr. Rembert Patrick, in his fine book on Jefferson Davis and his cabinet, uh, denies that Seddon was uh, a rubber stamp for Davis, says that he was a strong man and that he exercised a good deal of independence and initiative in administering the affairs of the War Department. It is my personal opinion that uh, Mr. Seddon started out with uh, some independence, but that he quickly uh, was suppressed by Davis, and uh, that he became largely the tool of Davis in the Department. But here's Randolph, who thinks uh, from the beginning that Seddon uh, will do Mr. Davis's bidding. You say Randolph is not a competent witness. Well, maybe not. Uh, but he is a thoroughly honorable man. And one of the things that impresses me about this letter is the lack of bitterness in the letter. And he never manifested uh, any bitterness about it. Mr. Seddon, Mr. Seddon's want of familiarity with military matters must make him dependent on the president. This is to be regretted. The president has not the time to discharge the duties of the office, nor is he well qualified to do so efficiently. He lacks system, is very slow, does not discriminate between important and unimportant matters, has impractical knowledge, or has no practical knowledge, of the workings of our military system in the field. Now, Randolph himself had commanded a brigade. Davis had commanded a regiment in the Mexican War. But uh, there was a big difference between field conditions in the Civil War and field conditions in the Mexican War, particularly when you consider the difference between brigade command in the Confederate War and uh, regimental command in the Mexican War. And uh, Davis had not kept up uh, with the changes and frequently mars it by theories which he has no opportunity to correct by personal observations. And uh, he will not permit amendment. Uh, from the experience of others. On uh, the other hand, he means well. Davis does, and understands the abstract principles of military organization. I do not, therefore, apprehend disaster from his absorption of the office of Secretary of War. With uh, much uh, uh, Secretary of War. No, then he closing. I'm sorry. With much affection, I am very truly yours, uh, George W. Randolph. Uh, That will suffice for the reading of the letters. But I thought that uh, that would uh, give to you a more intimate, uh, closer-up view than I could possibly give you uh, from certain problems uh, that confronted congressmen and uh, of the views and attitudes of members of the Congress. Now first I want to make some general comments uh, on the Confederate Congress. There were three Confederate Congresses. The first was a unicameral body the Provisional Congress, which came together at Montgomery on February 4, 1861. And uh, at that time, there were only six states included in the Confederacy. The six uh, cotton states, uh, that would be South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. The Texas delegates did not get to Montgomery in time to participate in the organization of the government. Uh, They began to arrive, the first one, Mr. Gregg, got to Montgomery on uh, February 15 and the last of the delegation about the 23rd or the 24th, and they were admitted with voting powers on uh, February 25th. So the very important work of organizing the government was done by representatives from six states aggregating about 45 men. Uh, We can remove the about. There were 45 men. And these people had not been elected by the people. They were chosen by the state conventions, the state secession conventions. And uh, you could not then say that they came fresh from the people with a mandate from uh, Confederate citizens as to what they should do. They elected the president, Jefferson Davis, provisional president, provisional vice president, Alexander Stevens, and they drew up a constitution. It's interesting uh, to note that in their early days, uh, they referred to themselves as the convention. In the proceedings published in the Montgomery papers, the term convention appears for the first two days, and then they talk about it a little bit in meeting, and they decide to give themselves the official designation of the Congress. And it's important because a convention uh, has organizational, constitution making powers. Uh, A Congress has legislative powers. Well, this first Congress uh, held forth until uh, February 17, 1862, when it adjourned. Then on the next day, February 18, 1862, the first permanent Congress, a bicameral body, assembled. And it held forth until uh, February 18, 1864. There was a period of adjournment, and then they're assembled in May. 1864, the third Congress, the second permanent Congress, and uh, it assembled on May 2nd, 64, and it adjourned finally on uh, March 18, 1865. The uh, There were five sessions of the provisional Congress, uh, four sessions of the first regular Congress, and two sessions of the second regular Congress. How did they know how many representatives they were to have? They simply adopted the number that uh, the states had had under the old government. All in all, 267 men served in the Confederate Congress. There was another man elected, uh, 268 he would have been, Nathaniel W. Towns of Texas. He was elected by the legislature on March 13, 1865, but he never got to Richmond. Uh, indeed, uh, five days uh, later the Confederate Congress adjourned, and it would have taken him, under the conditions of travel, uh, three or four weeks or longer uh, to get from Texas to Richmond. So he doesn't appear on the roll of Congress, and uh, he didn't take part in any of the deliberations. At least two congressmen went over to the Federals during the period of the Confederacy. One was Williamson R. W. Cobb of North Alabama. He was elected by a large majority in the campaign of 1863 over his opponent, John Rawls. But uh, a little after that, uh, he was accused of collaborating with the Federals. Indeed, the Federals intended to make him military governor of Alabama. When Congress assembled next time uh, in uh, May 1864, his colleague William Chilton from Alabama said, we hear that he's gone over to the Yankees, and he asked for an investigation. And this investigation revealed that Mr. Chilton's charge, Mr. Chilton knew that it was true, of course, he just wanted uh, official sanction for it, uh, that he had gone over to the Yankees, and so he was expelled. Mr. Cobb was expelled from the Confederate Congress by unanimous vote. The other person who went over to the Federals was also from Alabama, David P. Lewis. And after he completed his term in the Provisional Congress, he went to Nashville in '63 and he remained there for the rest of the war. He had voted against secession, but even so had been elected to the Provisional Congress, and uh, then he went over to the Federals. The quality of the Confederate congressmen varied greatly. The most distinguished group were the original group, the Provisional Congressman. And if you look over that list, particularly the Georgia and the South Carolina and the Virginia delegations, you will see that it was a very impressive group. But after a few months, a good many of these original congressmen withdrew to take commissions in the army. And at first, they were allowed to hold their commissions and hold their seats in Congress. But uh, the Confederate government decided that that was an unwise arrangement, and uh, they were required to make a choice. And uh, nearly all of them elected to stay in the army uh, rather than to remain in Congress. But in all of the Congresses, there were some outstanding men such people as Thomas S. Bocock of Virginia, who was the Speaker of the House for the Confederate Congress, the regular Congresses, and then uh, ex-president, or not ex-president, provisional Congress, and he was supposed to be the Speaker of the House for the first uh, regular Congress, but he died uh, before the assembling of Congress. He died, indeed, uh, early, January 18, 1862, and they got Bocock. William C. Reeves of Virginia, J.L.M. Curry, of Alabama, C. C. Clay Jr. of Alabama, Robert Barnwell of South Carolina, James Orr of South Carolina, William Porsche Miles of South Carolina, who was chairman of the House Military Affairs Committee and a very able man who moved to Louisiana after the war and became a large sugar, sugar planter, Herschel V. Johnson and Ben Hill of Georgia, and Augustus Garland of Arkansas, just to mention of the few outstanding members. There were six senators who served all the way through both Congresses and the Provisional Congress, there were 21 members of the House who served all the way through, and some of these were good people, some of them were uh, just average. Senator Wigfall of Texas had ability, but he was erratic and uh, sharp-tongued and was frequently in trouble. The most brilliant orator, unquestionably, was William Lowndes Yancey, the fire eater from Alabama, but uh, he died in 1863. And uh, he had a good mind, undoubtedly, but again, uh, he uh, was uh, rather a difficult person at times. He was like Wigfall, a uh, tempestuous, and given to extreme views. The greatest rascal of them all was Henry Foote, who served Tennessee in the House of Representatives. And uh, he was uh, in hot water a good deal of the time, and he kept Congress boiling. I think it would be fair to refer to him as a Confederate version of McCarthy. Uh, He was uh, very uh, fond of investigating, and one of the favorite objects of investigation was Secretary Mallory and the Navy Department, uh, which uh, suffered a good deal of embarrassment and humiliation from the sharp-tongued Foote. Hatred of Jefferson Davis was an obsession with Foote. They had known each other in Mississippi, had been political opponents. Uh, Then uh, Foote moved on up into Tennessee, but he never liked uh, Jefferson Davis. The editor of the Arkansas Gazette wrote of uh, Foote, March 1st, 1862, in an editorial, Mr. Foote has gabbed on all sides of all questions. Politically, he has turned backside foremost, inside out, and topside down. In one thing, he has been consistent. That is his hatred of President Davis. And now he appears in the selfishly unpatriotic attitude of a man ready and anxious to sacrifice principle, country, and all to the gratification of his egotistic personal hatred." Foote was involved in a number of uh, fights, and I don't mean verbal contests, I mean physical tussles, and some of these took place on the floor of the house or in committee. On one occasion, he interrupted uh, Congressman E.S. Dargan of Alabama while Dargan was making a speech and called Dargan a damned rascal, and those were dangerous words. Dargan rushed at foot with a bowie knife. I don't know (laughs) how come Dargan armed (laughs) uh, with a bowie knife, uh, but he was. Well, colleagues uh, considerately came in and got hold of Dargan and restrained him. And after he was safely pinned down on the floor, while old Foote uh, struck a pose and dramatically said, I defy the steel of the assassin.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: on another occasion, uh, during a committee session, uh, Foote ridiculed Thomas B. Hanley of Arkansas, and Hanley jumped on Foote, and in the ensuing melee, Foote tore off Hanley's shirt bosom, one of those detachable starch affairs, you know. And pushed L.B. Northrop in a corner. And that was all of the damage that was done. There are some people who think it would have been a good idea if he had held Northrop in that corner, uh, because uh, probably the worst administered department in the Confederacy was the commissariat. And that was Northrop's uh, bailiwick. And uh, you can find very few authorities on the Confederacy who have a kind word to say for him. But Jefferson Davis knew him and liked him, and he held him in position despite incompetency and a vast amount of opposition to the man throughout the Confederacy. Near the end of the war, Foote, uh, who early in the war had condemned Jefferson Davis very severely for not uh, carrying the war to the enemy country, crossed over the lines to the Federals and uh, was unanimously expelled from the Confederate Congress. Warren Aiken from Georgia sat next to him and he wrote to his wife that was tremendous improvement in the atmosphere of Congress uh, now that Foote was no longer there. And Mr. Aiken was a very gentle man, and uh, even he uh, found this uh, person odious. Congress had an enormous turnover. Only 27 members served all the way through, that is, all of the Congresses. The first great turnover came in the summer of 61, when, as I have stated, a good many men withdrew to accept military assignments. And uh, in the fall of 1861, there was some more turnover because the election was held in that year for the Congress that was to assemble the next February. But at this time, the fortunes of the Confederacy were running very high, and there was a disposition on the part of the people to return the men who had represented them in the Provisional Congress, so there was not a great turnover then. In the autumn of 1863 occurred the first great turnover. The elections uh, were held then for members of the second Congress that were to assemble the following May. Now the country was thoroughly disillusioned at this time. There had been a tremendous reaction against the original secessionists, as they were frequently called, though some of the editors called these original secessionists or the fire called them blood drinkers. You find that term appearing in the papers. One of these men had said that he would drink all of the blood that might be shed in any war with the North because the North wouldn't fight. Well, he would have had a good deal of blood uh, to consume, and uh, so original secessionists were called by some blood drinkers. The original secessionists, most of whom were Breckenridge Democrats, had promised the country two things. First, there would be no war. Second, if by remote chance a war should occur, it would be a short war, and the South would win an easy victory. The European nations, responding to the kingship of cotton, would intervene, break the blockade to get the staple that they needed to keep their mills going. At first, it seemed uh, that they would prove right, but in the early 1862, a series of reverses came: Fort Henry, Fort Donelson, Roanoke Island, followed then by Shiloh. Well, the loss of Nashville first, the first first state capital to fall. Shiloh, the fall of New Orleans, which was a tremendous blow. Mrs. Chestnut wrote in her diary, New Orleans has fallen, and with it, the Confederacy. Uh, Then uh, Memphis in uh, June 1862, other coastal points before and shortly afterward. The more I study the history of the Confederacy, the more firmly am I convinced, Mr. Churchill to the contrary notwithstanding, that the turning point in the Civil War came not in 1863 but in 1862 and a uh, good many of you uh, heard the talk that I made on the confederate government uh, down at Vicksburg and you remember that I stated this point then uh, these early these reverses in 62 proved that this was not to be a short war but a long war and these reverses caused Jefferson Davis and the confederate government and the military leaders to lose status and they never recurred uh, recovered this And when all the political and the military and the morale facts are considered together, uh, it seems to me that the case for stating that the turning point in the war came early in 1862, there certainly in the first six months of 1862, uh, can uh, be supported uh, with a good deal of strength. Well, in 1863, the autumn, when these elections came along, Vicksburg and Gettysburg, had occurred, and many people despaired of Confederate victory. And if you read letters and diaries, particularly of people in the Trans-Mississippi District, you can realize uh, how devastating uh, were these great reverses of 1863, uh, causing the government to lose more caste, more status still. And in this atmosphere, the elections were held, and many, many men who were identified with the Davis government and with secession were not returned to their positions. Indeed, the Congress that assembled in May 1864 in the House had 43 new members out of a total of 105 members in the House. Among people who didn't come back were J. L. M. Curry, who was the ablest member in the Alabama delegation and one of the most outstanding of all the congressmen, C.C. C. Clay, Jr. of Alabama, Six members of the second delegation in Congress in Alabama were said to be Unionists. And in North Carolina, a large group of old Whigs, people who had uh, been lukewarm towards secession, if not directly opposed to it, uh, took their seats in Congress. And they included James A. Graham, James G. Ramsey, James T. Leach, Josiah Turner, John A. Gilmer, and Thomas C. Fuller. J.D. Rulak Hamilton, the eminent uh, professor emeritus of history and collector of manuscripts at the University of North Carolina, told me in 1952 that he had known Fuller in the years after the war and that Fuller stated to him on one occasion that the reason he ran for the Confederate Congress in 1863 was that he thought he could do the Confederacy more harm in the Congress than outside. And so he ran and was elected and worked for peace. These old Whigs, who came into Congress in this reaction of 1863, resented very much the steamroller tactics that had been used on them in the early days of the war in the secession movement, as far as that goes, by the immediate secessionists. The immediate secessionists just put them in the back corner after secession was consummated. They didn't uh, give them honors. They spoke of them uh, disparagingly as submissionists and uh, treated them in a very inconsiderate manner. And now, after Donaldson and Henry and Shiloh and New Orleans and Memphis and Gettysburg and Vicksburg, when these men have not come through with their promise for a quick and easy victory, the old Whigs have their day, and they are enjoying the opportunity to express themselves with reference to this original group. This affords a good historical example of uh, the wisdom of being generous in dealing with uh, your political enemies. If the uh, immediate secessionists had been more considerate of the old Whigs, I think this split that came in 1863 uh, would not have been as great or as damaging as it was. Generally speaking, the quality of congressmen seems to me to have been better than usually represented. Now, I want to admit uh, freely and fully that Congress spent a good deal of time in trivialities discussing the design of the Confederate flag, uh, discussing the details of the great seal of the Confederacy, and uh, in other things that had uh, hardly more than academic interest, uh, relatively speaking. But Congress had some positive accomplishments to its credit. These included the passage of the first National Conscription Act in the history of this country, Now, I'm assuming that the Confederacy was a nation, and it surely was, for four years endowed with all of the attributes of sovereignty. On uh, April 16, 1862, an act was passed providing for the conscription of males 18 to 35. And this was the first time in American history that we had had a national draft act. And it took some courage, uh, and uh, it took some vision to run counter to the traditions of the country, of Americans, with respect to the raising of armies. And it was deeply resented in many quarters. Indeed, uh, I'm very doubtful now uh, of the wisdom of uh, the resort to conscription. It didn't bring many men into the army. It did do one thing. It held the men already in the army at Vaya and prevented the dissolution of the armies uh, in uh, the spring of 1862, which was very much feared. But outside of that, I am convinced that it was unwise in terms of the men it yielded uh, for the army, because it caused so much uh, dissension. It devised a comprehensive taxing program, including a tax on incomes and the previously unheard of tax in kind. It authorized the impressment of supplies for the army, and this was a new thing. And it uh, also ran counter to American ideas of individual liberty. And we hear the press talking about these inquisitorial agents. And that was a term usually applied to the impressment agents. It wrestled recurrently with the difficult and really hopeless problem of providing a sound currency and a stable economy. In general, the Congress gave the president what he asked for, though it balked at some of his urgent requests late in the war, specifically his desire to have the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus uh, extended. But in this, it was representing the will of the majority of the people. Congress was closer to the people than was President Davis. Undoubtedly, the Congress had a poor reputation, and I will want to examine briefly some of the reasons for this. First, its noisy, sensational members like Foote and Wigfall attracted a disproportionate amount of attention, and people came to think of Congress in terms of these unrepresentative characters. The fist fights and the other unseemly incidents that marred some of the proceedings of Congress also were played up. Uh, out of uh, proportion by the press and uh, by other people. You recall that C.C. Uh, C. Clay uh, had an inkstand thrown at him by Ben Hill of Georgia uh, during the course of the debate and uh, split uh, Clay's cheek and blood uh, and ink were intermingled on the cheek and on the floor. Well you can imagine the plea that this got and it tended to uh, besmirch. The reputation of Congress, and some of the members were immoderate in their habits. And Wigfall uh, didn't know how to handle the bottle always. There were two men from uh, Missouri, J. B. Clark and Thomas A. Harris. I found a very amusing letter, written by Thomas A. Harris, to Governor Reynolds of Missouri, in 1864. Harris wanted to be reelected, and he knew that Reynolds had heard about his heavy drinking. So he wrote Reynolds uh, a letter which contained this statement, Remember me to other inquiring friends. You can tell them that I am a teetotaler irrevocably, until the end of the war, at least. (laughs) I think when he wrote that word, irrevocably, uh, he thought, well, there's no need of going this far. (laughs) So he added the phrase, until the end of the war, at least. And whatever vices they may hear attributed to me in future, that I authorize them unequivocally, unequivocally to give the lie to him who shall accuse me of indulgence either in cards or in spiritus liquors." Well, in the Reynolds letter book at the Library of Congress, there are some letters of Reynolds uh, to people back in Missouri that reveal that Harris had got drunk in a gambling house and fallen down the steps and uh, injured himself seriously. So uh, he had need to try to set himself straight uh, with Governor Reynolds. Another thing that tended to give Congress a bad reputation was the secrecy of its proceedings. This was one of the greatest mistakes made by Congress and one of the greatest mistakes made in the Confederacy, this closing of the doors of Congress, barring of newspaper men when important uh, acts were being discussed. The people not knowing what was going on imagined the worst. And it would have been much better for the country and for the Congress if the sessions had been open. Congress had a poor press, and this is a very important reason for its bad reputation. One of the reasons was secrecy. Another reason was the reckless statements that were made by some of the congressmen. The Richmond Inquirer, February 1863, reported that Conrad of Louisiana said, in fact, we could do without newspapers for six months. The press has done the country more harm than good. And uh, you can imagine how well a statement like that uh, set uh, uh, with uh, the congressman, uh, I mean, with the press. And uh, they not only jumped on Conrad, but they jumped on some of the others as well. And Congress on occasion excluded from the open session certain members of the press who had uh, written pieces unfavorable to certain individuals in Congress. And the editors became very angry when Congress uh, talked about... uh, moving the exemption that was allowed to editors and putting them on a detailed basis instead. The truth of the matter is that this suggestion came not from Congress, but from Jefferson Davis himself. And some of the uh, most talented writers were very hostile to Congress. And one of these, of course, was Pollard of the Examiner, who uh, seemed to take great delight in uh, playing up the Congress uh, as a wholly incompetent, irresponsible group. Perhaps the basic reason for the poor reputation of Congress was that legislative bodies appear to disadvantage under the best of circumstances. They are slow and they are talkative and they are given to compromises sometimes that uh, do not represent the views of anyone who desires. And the Confederate Congress appeared in worse light than usual because, that is, in most legislative bodies, because it had to try to solve problems which virtually were Unsolvable. And when an institution or an enterprise fail, it's customary to seek a scapegoat. The logical scapegoat for the failure of the Confederacy was Jefferson Davis, and he would have been the scapegoat had it not been for the fact that at the end of the war, as you know, he was captured and shackled by the Federals, and that converted him from scapegoat to martyr, and Congress, rather than the President, became the scapegoat. It had ingloriously adjourned and sought safety on March 18, 1865, and this was the second time that it had adjourned when the Federals came close. It did the same thing on April 21, 1862. And then this second Congress was the least distinguished of all of the three Congress, and that was the one that was freshest in the minds of the people when the end of the war came. Those then, uh, uh, in my opinion, are the basic reasons for the poor reputation of the Congress. Now, I think maybe I've talked long enough. I have a few items here on life of congressman in the Confederate capital. I'll just, uh, I think I'll let that go, uh, Mr. Speaker, because uh, I expect I've been talking about 40 or 50 minutes, uh, and uh, I think it would be more fun, maybe, to have some crossfire up here. <coughs> the military, lead the military life
0: to join the Congress. The the the, uh, question is, did any of the military people who left the Congress return to the Congress? I believe that's. uh, Did they leave? That were in the military, leave the military to
1: join the Congress? Yes, there were a number of men uh, who uh, went from the military uh, into the Congress. I'm ashamed to say. If you present me the old question, name one, (laughs) that I can't do it offhand, but uh, I do know that there were several instances of men, some of whom had been wounded and uh, virtually incapacitated, uh, from uh, field service who entered the Congress. Did Robert Toombs go back in? No. Robert Robert Toombs didn't go back. He wanted to go back, Uh, but uh, they wouldn't have him, and it was a, a source of much pain to him that uh, Herschel B. Johnson uh, was sent instead of him.
0: Yes, sir, would you, you give, give your name? Paul Davis. You said that the uh, Federal Constitution was adopted in uh, almost in total after the, the uh, American Constitution. The uh, Confederate Constitution was called a Federal Constitution. There were quite a number of notable changes made. chief among them was the uh, federal constitution avoided the pork barrel appropriations by enabling the president to veto any part of the bill without vetoing all of it and uh, then it provided for an audit which the american constitution doesn't and there were quite of no others so they didn't adopt it in total there were some very serious and beneficial changes
1: i'm i'm awfully glad that you you brought that point out uh, I I see that I left uh, an erroneous impression, I surely don't want to do that. Another of course was a single term uh, for the presidency, uh, the provision that uh, members of the cabinet could appear on the floor of Congress and uh, support measures originating with their department. And uh, uh, oh, there are others too. The word slavery doesn't appear in the federal constitution. It refers, it appears in one form or another. Uh, nine times, seven times in the Confederate Constitution. Uh, it did specifically recognize property in slaves, and it also recognized the right of uh, carrying uh, slave property from one state to another, or uh, from uh, the states to the territories of the Confederacy. And the Confederacy did have a territory, uh, the territory of Arizona, as well as uh, claims to the Indian Territory. And there was a man named Mack Willie who represented the Arizona Territory. In the Confederate Congress, Uh, that's not all uh, of the provisions. But I'm awfully glad that you brought that point out.
0: (laughs) G T T. That uh, that, uh, reason the Texas delegation was late because they waited for their actual returns, the vote taken in Texas, uh, (coughs) before they started from Texas. There was a uh, vote taken
1: in that state, which was uh, delayed a couple of days and returned to her because of the slowness of communication. That's right. Uh, the uh, Texas was one of the few states, uh, Virginia and uh, Tennessee uh, were other, two other states, the border states mainly, that submitted the uh, ordinance of secession to the people for ratification. And the Texas delegates were not seated until word of the ratification had been received.
0: The other question is, uh, I'm pretty much disgusted with your remarks about Mr. Foot. <laughs> 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 that milk and water statement you made from the Arkansas paper ain't nothing. Have you ever seen the editorial that Mr. H. A. Ware wrote, <coughs> who served under Stonewall Jackson, of what he thought of Mr. Foot? Well, I'll trade you a. Uh, out of that for one of those 25 books our <coughs> you let me know
1: I haven't seen the editorial and I would like to have it uh, but you've got to make a more reasonable
0: proposition <laughs> <laughs> I, your
1: uh, statement that the turn came in 1862. <laughs> I uh, just recently, a friend of mine who uh, follows the stock market very closely, uh, had a graph and uh, his advisors <coughs> told him that the turn came at the Battle of An- Antietam. So that ties in fairly well in your talk about, you, you put it a little earlier in 62. Yes, uh, this, of course, is uh, one of those arguable things, and we'll never reach a conclusion on it that will satisfy everybody, and that's one reason, of course, that this war uh, is so absorbingly interesting to many people, and you can't be absolutely certain of this. I'm sure that uh, the point of uh, Antietam being the turning point was the fact that we claimed closest to foreign recognition uh, just before... Well. Uh, after Antietam, uh, the move to recognition gradually faded away. There seemed to be not much chance of that, though another great effort was made by Lindsay and Roebuck in 1863. But when Antietam uh, caused the withdrawal of Lee back across the Potomac, the movement for recognition, which had gained a great deal of headway just at that time, uh, fell away, collapsed. And in that sense, on the diplomatic front, that was the turning point. But uh, in my opinion, uh, a victory at Antietam would neither have produced foreign recognition or led to a victory. Uh, One of the things that is frequently overlooked when we talk about uh, the importance of uh, a military event, Gettysburg say, Pickett's Charge is the turning point of the war, is the attitude of the people on the Union side. It seems to me that The North could always win as long as the North was determined to win. And until I read the letters of Billy Yank, I had no idea of the depth of devotion of the masses of the people in the North to the ideal of union. They were willing to die for the union. Union was a very compelling motive, and I think in many respects, because of its positive qualities. a more powerful stimulation uh, than even uh, the defense of uh, heart and home. And as long as the North had leadership that would persevere, the masses of the North would follow. And I think the North could have suffered greater and uh, more humiliating defeats and still won the war because of the depth of devotion of the masses of the people in the North to the Union. Ralph, you well, know, I'm, I'm glad to see that everyone seems to be coming closer to the Newman theory. <laughs> I've always maintained, more uh, a little loudly, more loudly lately. That the decisive moment of this war came on April 12, 61. The South was winning until they fired that first
0: shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to get up and say, that the turning point came at Sumter. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, though, if I may. What were the principal campaign issues in the campaigns in 61 and 63? when the Congresses were re-elected or defeated, as the case may have been? What were they campaigning on?
1: uh, There really was no issue in 61. There there was such complete uh, unanimity uh, in support of the war that uh, the candidates had no opposition uh, worthy of anything. Uh, Where there was opposition, it was uh, on a personal basis. They were voting for individuals rather than issues or principles. But uh, by 1863, uh, the measures that were associated with the administration became the issues. That is, conscription, impression, and the suspension of the habeas corpus. Uh, The the people who were running uh, against the incumbents were, for the most part, opposed to impressment. They were opposed to conscription, and they were opposed to the extension of the writ of uh, the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Those were the principal issues. Joe Eisner, you mentioned that the uh, Congress started on February 4th of 61. Well, what I'm going to ask has nothing to do with the Congress, but I, I should know and don't. Uh, when was Jefferson Davis inaugurated as a provisional president, and when was his first cabinet meeting? That I've never been able to find out, and were all the members there? I can't tell you uh, when the uh, first cabinet uh, meeting was held, though I can tell you where you can find out if you can't find out anywhere else. Uh, Mallory kept a diary, a copy of which is in the Southern Collection at the Historical uh, of the University of uh, North Carolina, the Southern Historical Collection, and he makes notes about those first cabinet meetings, and I believe that you can ascertain it there. Uh, Before you go to that trouble, check with Patrick. uh, or have you done that already? I think maybe he tells you. What about it, Monroe? No, Patrick doesn't know.
0: He doesn't know. I wrote to him about the very same question. Patrick doesn't know, and he says he's surprised that he doesn't know. <laughs> well,
1: I'm, I'm, not, I'm not absolutely sure that you'll find the answer in Mallory, but I think you will. I think you will find uh, uh, his references to the first cabinet meetings. I think I can produce
0: at least 15 letters on that very same question that Joe's talking about. I don't think anybody knows.
1: Now, as to when Davis was inaugurated, he was uh, elected on uh, February 9th by the Provisional Congress, 1861, and he was inaugurated on uh, February the 22nd, I believe that's right. One time he was inaugurated on February 18th, and the other time on 22nd. I believe the, in 61, though, it was February 22nd. But I'm... I might here, Ray Smith, went through
0: some 50 books me looking for that same question same answer we found nothing not when the first cabinet meeting <coughs> and where and who was present those are the three questions well
1: the, the the information may not exist i may be wrong uh, about uh, I, I do know that mallory has uh, notations about the early meetings but whether or not you could establish from his account the first meeting or who was there i can't say i'm glad to be alerted to the fact that this is such a great mystery i i didn't know it was and i We'll start looking, too, but I'm dubious, uh, if you experts haven't found it, that I'm I will sorry, be able to sir, find it. You wrote
0: me a letter. If Patrick couldn't answer it, <laughs> you couldn't. <answer>. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like the Harry Truman answer a cock thing. Mr. Wiley, aside from Polish examiner, what
1: attitude did the most, most of the newspapers in the South take toward Congress on George Davis? I suppose that uh, from a third to a half of the papers, and this is a rough guess and it's based on uh, an incomplete sampling, uh, were favorable to Davis. Uh, I would say that from two-thirds uh, to three-fourths of the press were hostile to Congress. It's rare that you find a favorable comment about the Confederate Congress uh, in a Confederate newspaper. Yes sir. yes, sir. Martin, was the Bill of Rights, uh, as, were the Bill of Rights as stated in the uh, in the uh, National Constitution? Were they more or less accepted in a blanket form by the uh, Confederate Congress in their Constitution, with uh, were there any particularly abridgments or changes made in the Bill of Rights? by the Confederacy? I'm I'm going to have to say that I don't know, uh, and I'm ashamed that I I say that. My (laughs) recollection, my impression is that there were no changes. Was that Constitution ever put in a written form? Yes, Yes, it was, and uh, the most convenient place to find it, uh, with uh, the provisions in parallel columns so that you can compare them conveniently, well, there are two places that I recall offhand, One is in the back of Alexander H. Stevens' two volumes, A Constitutional View of the Late War Between the States, and the other is in a little book, J.L.M. Curry, A Civil History of the Confederate States of America. And they have in italics the points in the Confederate Constitution that were different from those in the federal constitution. So it's quick and easy reference work. Yes, sir. Um, What was, uh, was any reporting uh, done in the Northern publication of the meeting of the Confederate Congress, or was it of such a secret nature that it was uh, unknown? Oh, no. No, the, the, the meetings were known and they were uh, covered by the Northern press. There were references and frequent references to the meetings of the Confederate Congress, the time of assembly, the time of adjournment, and uh, commentaries on the work that was being done. Uh, from the proceedings published in the Richmond papers and the Montgomery papers, and that's where the Northern papers got their information, you could uh, know what Congress was considering. But you couldn't know what was said in the debates uh, on these important matters. You could know what the vote was uh, in most cases. But the thing that's missing uh, are the debates themselves.
0: best book on that whole subject of uh, the Federal Constitution is Justice in Gray. It's a, it's a magnificent treatment of the entire judicial system and the Constitution, the Federal Constitution. I was just going to ask, Bill, that uh, you mentioned the fact that the convention was sent there by the various states. How about the second and third Congress? I'm not sure I understand. Were they elected by the public?
1: <coughs> <coughs> The, the senators, of course, were elected by the state legislatures, uh, as was done uh, at that time uh, in the federal government. The uh, representatives were elected by popular vote, uh, but the uh, participation in the voting was very, very light, uh, particularly in uh, 1861 and, in many instances, in uh, 1863. And of course, uh, Missouri and Kentucky. Uh, had uh, delegations in the Confederate Congress and stars in the Confederate flag. And the congressmen from those states were elected largely by soldiers in the field because you couldn't have elections up in Kentucky (laughs) and in Missouri in uh, 1863 or 1861, either, as far as that goes. So, uh, these people were not really representative of only a small group in terms of voting. Elmer, just a second. How long were the Congresses in session each year? Uh, the sessions uh, lasted from uh, about four weeks uh, to about eight weeks. Four to eight weeks was the, was the normal uh, period. Did all their fighting in that
0: time?
1: Yes, they did all their fighting. They got in lots of fighting because they fought intensively.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to ask you elementary questions like, uh, was the poll tax in the during the uh, time of the Confederacy, uh, did they run all on Democratic tickets, or did they have different names for party? Have- i mean, have to ask you just asking a few simple questions. But at the time that the uh, peace commissioners made their bid for the peace, was that approved by the Congress?
1: Uh, there were no parties. These these people were on the ticket as individuals because uh, there there were no parties as such in the Confederacy. Uh, as to the peace proposals being approved uh, by the Congress, my recollection is that that was not voted on by Congress; that that was handled as an executive matter, and I'm pretty sure that that's right. Oh, uh, the poll tax? No poll tax. Uh, poll tax on slaves, uh, but that was uh, a revenue matter, only. Well, now I'd like to ask you a kind of silly old question. You mentioned Congressman CC C. Clay. What state was he from? He was from Alabama. He lived in Huntsville, Alabama, but uh, he was he was an exile during most of the war. No kin to Henry or Cash. Uh, I don't believe so. C.C. Uh, Clay Jr. His father was C.C. Clay, but uh, I would like to refer that question to the audience. Anybody know? I'm I'm under the impression that he was uh, it was a different family. There's certainly no close kin. Uh, Monroe, what were you, uh... What did you mean to say four to
0: eight weeks? What did you mean four to eight months the Congress was in session?
1: No, four to four to eight weeks, uh, per, per session. Two sessions a year. Well, well, no, there were four sessions, uh, well, the whole Congress, so... Uh, I may be wrong in that. I, I, I'm not absolutely sure. Be because there were a lot of
0: changes made at one time or another, and they couldn't have been hardly that short. Uh,
1: the last Congress had held two sessions. The first one assembled, uh, in May, on May 2nd, 1864, I just try to pin it down a little bit. Uh, my recollection is the, that uh, it adjourned about August. That would be that would be long, yes. And then uh, it assembled again in December and held forth to March. Yes, it, it, uh, I would have to extend the outer limits. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you called me on that. I said that without thinking thoroughly. The as the federal Congress did, I mean, as salaries for the congressmen and senators, or uh, did they serve as for the cause, or what? That uh, I have here in my notes, and I'm glad you asked it. The pay started out at $8 a day. That was what they got in 1861. In 1862, the salaries uh, were fixed at $2,760 a year, and uh, in 1865, they were getting uh, $600 a month but uh, that didn't near keep uh, pace uh, with uh, inflation. May, 24th, May 25th, 1864, A.M. Branch wrote his wife, quote, I am now paying $600 a month with two meals a day, which is pretty high board. So his board alone uh, was more than his salary uh, at that time. Bell, I want to thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, for participating. We've certainly enjoyed
0: The evening, there are no further questions.